This morning, would you turn with me in your Bibles, please, to the little book called Matthew. It's the first gospel in the New Testament, and we're on a ser- in a series I'm calling What Does the Future Hold? And it all started as we were finishing up a series about questions that people asked Jesus Christ. And one of the questions they asked him is the scripture that we'll look at today in Matthew chapter 24 when you get there in a moment. I don't know if you've seen it or not, but as you're turning there, I'm going to show you a picture of a book on the screen. There's a little book that's called Predictions About the Next Millennium. It's about 24 years old now. It was written in 1999, and it was just a a collection of questions that were asked and predictions that were put out. And the authors got celebrities to tell us what's going to happen in the future. Boy, you can sure take that to the bank, can't you, to get that kind of input. But they also got some scientists and some entertainers to make predictions of what would happen in the next millennium. Well, just so you'll know, we're 23 years into the next millennium. And so let me say that looking at their predictions, because I have that book and I've looked at it, it's a little bit laughable. Most of them said that we would have world peace by now. How's that going? They said there's going to be a cure for every disease. Mario Andretti said there's going to be auto racing on Mars. Isn't that great? And so far, they're really batting zero on all of these predictions of what's going to take place. Well, the Bible makes predictions about what's going to happen in a number of places and a number of different fronts. A lot of people have tried to get ahead of the Bible in making predictions And so for the next weeks, as we have for the last two or three weeks, when I was speaking, we began talking about these predictions of what the end of the world was going to be like. And I know this isn't the best sermon topic if you want seven steps to a healthy pet. But I want to tell you, Jesus said in the first part of the book of Revelation, blessed is he who studies this and knows what's going to happen in the future. Because, folks, these 70, 80, 90 years we have on this earth is not all there is. This is just the prequel. The best is yet to come. And so we're going to talk about that. We don't want to get ahead of God in the process. There have been Baptists that have done that. There was one Baptist lay preacher by the name of William Miller in 1844 that decided Jesus was going to return on October the 22nd, 1844. And uh, everyone bought into it in the area he was in. Somehow they did it. And on that date, they went up on a mountain. You can look it up in history and read about it. And they wore white robes. I don't know if that made them feel more holy, getting ready to meet God. But long story short, Jesus didn't come in 1843. And then 1844, they set another date and tried it again. But as a result of that, there are many groups, including the Adventist movement, that didn't want to give up on that false teaching and started denominations from it. There are so many things that can happen and fingers like spiders that can extend when we get away from the teaching of the Word of God. And so when we do make predictions, when we do look at what could happen in the future, we need to line it up as much as we can with what the Bible says. And I want you to know that some things about the future are very exciting. And I want you to know that some things about the future are very excruciating. That's not everything that you would hope to read about in church on Sunday morning. Now, we all agree that Jesus is coming. Is there an amen in the house? And we all agree that we should be ready. But the exact timing of that event and how that will happen, that's a different topic. And there's an actual end that the Bible predicts, 2 Peter chapter 3. If you want to jot that down and read it sometime, it's very clear that this earth is prepackaged for destruction. 
But it's not just as straightforward as you may seem. It's interesting in God's sovereignty and in his providence that he chose to give us bits of information about the return of Jesus Christ in segments throughout all 66 books of the Bible. You'll remember that one-fourth of all scripture has to do with biblical prophecy. So this morning what I want to do is talk to you about the problem of Christ's return. And on the back of your bulletin, there's an outline that you can follow along. You might be thinking, Frank, what kind of problem could we have with Christ's return? Well, I want to put it in stages, and I want to be honest with you. I don't normally do this, but I'm going to give you information today like you're trying to get a drink out of a fire hose at 100 miles an hour. And if ever there was a time you pray that you have caffeine in your body, it should be right now. I want you to use your pencil. I want you to use your mind. I I hope you have your Bible open and that we can follow along together. There are three things that we're going to talk about. The first thing I want to talk to you about is the problem of Christ's return. And, And we put this in stages. Jesus promised that he would return at any time, and he told us to be ready for that. Jesus also told us that there would be certain signs that would happen when he came. So, so how are we to understand the promise of his return? Well, here's what the Bible says. The Bible says, be ready. It can happen at any moment. Be ready for his return. But then on the other hand, the Bible says, it can't happen yet. It can't happen until these signs are fulfilled. So where are we to make of the return of Jesus Christ, and how do we solve the problem? Well, let's begin with the exciting promise that we find in Matthew chapter 24. And it's the only chapter that we're going to look at today, except for the references that I've printed on your outline for you. In verse 30 of Matthew 24, and again, this is a big chapter, so we're only going to, uh, on this take, skim over parts of it. But look at verse 30 with me. If you're there, say amen. It says, then, and in a moment, I'll discuss what the then is. Then the sign of the Son of Man will appear in heaven. He's announcing his coming. This is Jesus speaking about him coming. Now look down at verse 44, if you would. It says, Therefore you also be ready, for the Son of Man is coming at an hour you do not expect. That's pretty exciting news. Ever since Jesus Christ came to earth the first time, he announced that he would be back for the second time. What you need to know that you may not think of is that the disciples are not expecting that. The disciples did not expect Jesus to be on earth, leave earth, go to heaven, and come back again. That was not their thinking. So in verse 3, and by the way, Matthew 24 and 25 is Jesus' answer to that question I preached on four weeks ago when they asked him the simple question. They came to him, notice on the screen, they said, tell us when will these things be? And actually, it's three questions. When will these things be? What is the sign of your coming? And what is the sign of the end of the age? Three separate, separate questions. They said, excuse me, they said, when will these things be? These things be was the destroying of the temple. Because Jesus had just talked to them about not one stone being on the other. So they said, when will these things be? Here's what's interesting to me. Jesus never answered that part of the question. Anywhere in scripture, he didn't deal with it right there. He answers specifically the end of the age question along with his coming again in Matthew 24. But when the disciples say, tell us the sign of your coming, they're not in their minds thinking that he's leaving, and then after at least 2,023 years, he would come back again. Their theology, stay with me, was pretty fixed at that time, especially if you've grown up in Judaism. 
They thought Jesus was coming to take power and to take over the temple and to restore Jerusalem from those horrible Roman invaders that had come in. So when they're asking the sign of his coming, what they mean is, when are you going to come in this place and take off and show them who's in charge? And let me explain to you why that is. The Jews at that time had a pretty fixed theological perspective or a construct of what eschatology in times would be all about. Number one, they believed that just before the Messiah comes, there, there would be a terrible turmoil on earth. Well, in their mind, that terrible turmoil was Rome had just come in and taken over and they lost control of their country. The Jews were no longer in charge and they saw that type of persecution as terrible turmoil. Number two, during that time of turmoil, they believed the prophecy from the Old Testament that an Elijah-like spirit would come to Jerusalem announcing the Messiah. Well, guess what? They saw that in the person of John the Baptist. They thought this was the announcement of the Messiah that was setting up his kingdom at that time. And then number three, after the Messiah would appear, that he would establish his kingdom on the earth and defeat the enemies of the Jews. And then lastly, all the scattered Jews would return to Israel. And then Jerusalem would be restored. The millennial reign would start in their minds. There would be peace on earth, goodwill to men. And the disciples believed that they were in phase three. Turmoil had come. The Elijah-like person had manifested himself at that point in time. And here's the Messiah. A couple of days, you remember, before Jesus has entered Jerusalem, he came in on a donkey. And do you remember what everyone said? Hosanna, Hosanna. They literally believed that Jesus was the Messiah. That he was coming in on that Sabbath to set up and take over. And the disciples are like, it's showtime, baby. We're going to show them now who's in control and who's the Messiah. Well, a couple of days after they were thinking this and asked this question, if you go ahead and continue reading in Matthew and John and the parallel in Luke, Jesus sits down with the disciples and answers their question. Sometimes he didn't answer their question when they wanted it answered. He says, oh, that thing about when am I coming again and setting up the world. And, and this is the time we call the Passover meal or the Last Supper. And during that time, he's going to tell them, he says, hey, guys, you calm down a little bit. I'm going to die, but I'm going to be resurrected. And I'm going to go to heaven and go away. And then, and then I'm going to come back at some point, which at that point, they're probably looking at him like deer in headlight. I told my family that you were coming in to set up your kingdom this week. We need to show them. I've already invited guests for this. Lord, we need you now. But he said this, and it's not on your screen, but you know it by heart. You could probably say it with me. Jesus looked at them probably. He said, oh, dear God. He said, guys, let not your heart be troubled. Say it with me. You believe in God, believe also in me. In my Father's house, there are many mansions. If it were not so, I would have told you. I go to prepare a place for you, and if I go, I will come again so that I may receive you unto myself, and that where I am, there you may be also. So as clear as you possibly can make it, he says, I'm going to die, I'm leaving, but I'm coming again. And now their whole theology is beginning to change. And there's a whole set of Bible verses that says there's going to be a sudden and an unexpected return of Jesus Christ. And though they're good theologians, godly women, godly men that may differ on some of these points, stay with me because my version's correct. <laughs> Just being serious. 
good people differ on certain points, but we all believe in the body of Christ that Jesus is coming back. I want to share with you just some verses. You won't have time to look them up or write them down. That's why I printed them on your outline. Several verses that would indicate that Jesus Christ could come back at any time in the world. In Matthew 25, 13, Jesus said, notice on the screen, Watch therefore, for you know neither the day nor the hour when the Son of Man is coming. In Philippians 3, in verse 20, it says, Paul is speaking here. He said, Our citizenship is in heaven, from which we eagerly wait for the Savior. Doesn't that sound like the imminent return? In Titus chapter 2, and verse 13, also written by the Apostle Paul, he said, We should live soberly, righteously, godly in this present age looking for the blessed hope and glorious appearing of our great God and Savior, Jesus Christ. James, a totally different author, in James chapter 5 and verse 8 says, The coming of the Lord is at hand. Behold, the judge is standing at the door. Again, same, uh, Peter says in 1 Peter 4, 8, The end of all things is at hand. Therefore, be serious and watchful in your eyes. And as Peter said again, the day of the Lord will come as a thief. Now, now tell me this, how does it, have any of you ever been a victim of a thief? Just raise your hand if you've ever had anything stolen from you. God, not you need to move. But so, it's, you know, anytime a robber has come, now Nick, you're an attorney. Do they ever call your office and say, I'm going to go rob someone tomorrow at 2.30? They never give a notice. They're not, they're not letting you know when they're going to come. It's sudden. It's unexpected. You don't know when it's going to take place. I love this verse in 1 John chapter 2 and verse 18. It says, little children, it is the last hour. And as you have heard that the Antichrist is coming, even now many Antichrists have come, by which we know it is the last hour. Then there's the book of Revelation. Six times, six times in the book of Revelation, Jesus says, behold, I am coming quickly. And finally, at the end of the book, John says, even so come quickly, Lord Jesus. So, so the, the blunt force of all these passages say to me, biblically, that Jesus Christ could come at any moment and we should be ready for it. That is known theologically and doctrinally as the doctrine of imminency. I-M-M-I-N-E-N-T. Imminent return of Jesus Christ. It means that it could happen at any moment. It could happen at any time. It's likely to happen soon. And you remember that one in every 25 verses in the New Testament make reference to the coming of Christ. And 50 times, that's 5-0, 50 times, we're told to be ready for it to return. And sometimes we act like we're ready. We used to do it in the 70s and 80s. Some of you are watching this movie now about the Jesus movement. Bumper stickers were everywhere. You remember the bumper, bumper sticker, Jesus is coming soon? I know I still believe that today. I believed it 50 years ago, and I believe it still today. There are other bumper stickers that says, Jesus is coming. And then it asks the question, are you ready? And another bumper sticker I used to like, Jesus is coming. Look busy. <laughs> you know, that's great. Look busy. Jesus is coming. And then one that you don't see a whole lot because the verbiage is not always clean, but it goes like this. Jesus is coming, and boy, is he ticked off. You know, so you can see all of these things. Well, I want you to know that I believe in the imminent return of Jesus Christ. It can happen at any moment, but we have salvation. That's the first point, that it could happen at any moment. But the second point on your outline is we have a problem with Jesus coming at any moment. And that's because there's a problem that exists in understanding the Scripture. 
Because there's a whole other set of scripture that says Jesus cannot return to this earth until certain signs take place first. And I want to run through these signs with you. There may be a whole lot more than these, but I want to run through some of them if you'll jot them down. Just one word at a time. The first one is deception. For Jesus to come again, the scripture says, there must be a great deception. There must be a falling away. And Jesus begins to answer that. Jesus answered them. Notice on the screen in verse 4. Take heed that no one deceives you. For many will come in my name saying, I am the Christ and will deceive many. Yes, you will hear of wars and rumors of wars. See that you're not troubled. For all these things must come to pass, but the end is not yet. In other words, can't happen yet. There's other things that have to happen. Slip down to verse 11. It says, many false prophets will rise up and deceive many. So deception is the first sign of what's happening. Now, would you agree with what I'm going to ask you or say? Deception's been around a long time, hasn't it? Since the Garden of Eden, we've dealt with deception. Since Satan first showed up and deceived Eve and told her lies, there's been deception in every era of history. But in the end of days, there'll come an ultimate kind of deception. There will be an ultimate deceiver. You may call it Satan's masterpiece. What the Bible calls in a number of places the Antichrist that will show up and be able to deceive the nations. And this leader will lead a confederation of nations. And, and Jesus himself predicted this. In John chapter 5, notice what it says. Jesus said, I've come in my Father's name, and you did not receive me. Another will come in his own name, and him you will receive. And the truth is, the world will indeed receive him according to Scripture. And I think we see the prequel of that type of thing happening even today in our global mentality on this earth, unfortunately. He's typically called the Antichrist, but he does have several other names, including the man of sin, the lawless one, the beast, the little horn, the prince that shall come, the willful king, the idle shepherd. But, but he's the ultimate deceiver. He's the ultimate wolf in sheep's clothing. And because number six is basically associated with mankind, because God created man on the sixth day of creation... His number will be 666 in some form, man, 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 the ultimate man. And so deception will be the first sign that will happen during that period that we would call the Great Tribulation. The second sign that must happen first is tribulation, tremendous tribulation. Now notice in verse 7, Jesus is dealing with this. He said, for nation will rise against nation, kingdom against kingdom. There will be famines pestilences, earthquakes in various places. All these are just the beginning of sorrows. Then they will deliver you up to tribulation and kill you, and you will be hated by all nations for my name's sake. And then many will be offended, will betray one another, will hate one another. Then many false prophets will rise up and deceive many. And because lawlessness, lawlessness will abound, the love of many will grow cold. Jump down to verse 21. For then there will be great tribulation, underlying great tribulation. It's the only place it shows up in the Gospels. Such as has not been seen since the beginning of the world until this time, no, nor ever shall be. And unless those days were shortened, no flesh would be saved. But for the elect's sake, those days will be shortened. Now, this is not just a tribulation. We're talking about the tribulation. 
This is not having a bad day. This is not having a bad season. This is not a trial that you're going through. It's talking here about the tribulation. Let me get a little more uh, technical with you. In Matthew chapter 24, in verse, beginning at verse 4 down to verse 14, I think Scripture is dealing with the first part of that seven-year period. But then verse 15 onward deals with the second half, known as the Great Tribulation. So there were dark ages in the past. Certainly there were dark ages that they're talking about. There were tough times in the past. Uh, but now we'll be dealing with the toughest of times. Guys, if you thought the pandemic was hard with 1.1 million deaths in our country, you ain't seen nothing yet. Daniel said in his prophecy that there would be a time of trouble such as never been seen since there was a nation. And that's really saying something if you think all the trouble. If you take the, the word disaster and look it up and, and, and tribulation and look it up in, in uh, Google on your computer, you'll come up with some horrible things that have happened. You'll come up with things like World War I and World War II and the Holocaust and the Black Plague. You'll come up with the bombing of Hiroshima and Nagasaki and, and terrible things that happened that way. The transatlantic slave trade. But all of those things are pale in comparison to what the great tribulation is going to be like. And all you have to do is look at the book of Revelation, which will detail that. And here's the amazing thing about the judgments that will happen the last seven years on this earth. They are progressive and they are increasing in horror as they take place and unfold during that time. They become more and more intense. They're represented, for an example, in the beginning by seven seals that are broken. Think of wax seals on parchment or a government paper and that opens up. They're broken. And they reveal something. And the seven seals then usher in seven trumpet judgments that usher in seven bowl judgments that are poured out upon the earth. So you have deception that must happen. You have tribulation that must happen. Number three, would you write it down? Devastation that will occur as a result of this. Go down to verse 29 in Matthew 24. It says, immediately after the tribulation of those days, now get this, the sun will be darkened, the moon will not give its light, the stars will fall from the heaven, and the powers of the heavens will be shaken. Then the sign of the Son of Man will appear in heaven, and then all the tribes of the earth will mourn, and they will see the Son of Man coming on the clouds of heaven with power and great glory. If you were to turn to the book of Revelation where the tribulation begins, it's not chapter 5, that's the beginning of what's happening in heaven, but in chapter 6 is where it starts. John sees this weird revelation of a stampede of horses that are coming all about him. They're called the four horsemen of the apocalypse. And the horses are different colors. The first one charging through is a white horse followed by a red horse. And close behind that red horse is a black horse. And then behind the black horse is a pale green horse. It would almost think you were watching a western on LSD or something. If you try to put, all, not that any of you would know anything about that. I know that. But, but the first guy on the white horse is a leader. And the Bible says about him, who comes conquering and to conquer. His entire goal is to conquer on this earth. And as a result of that, he brings a short-lived peace that people will be so excited about. But the other horses follow. And those horses bring with him war and famine and death. So that, are you ready for this? We have 8 billion people on the earth today. In one swift moment, 2 billion people are dead. 
Two billion with a B. One-fourth of the world's population is destroyed. And that, my brother and sister, is just the beginning of what the Bible talks about. According to Jesus in verse 8, all these are the beginnings of sorrows, the wars and the rumors of war, just the beginning. And I know you hear that and you go, really, Frank, how bad could it get? I'm so glad you asked. In in Revelation chapter 8, there are seven trumpet judgments that come. And they include in Revelation chapter 8, hail and fire from the sky, the rivers on the earth and the springs of water being polluted, the grass and all the green things on the earth being burned up. In, in a few weeks, I'm going to show you a video of what the, you, the world global agencies are predicting regarding something like that happening. And then that's followed by Revelation chapter 9, where a bottomless pit is opened up, and these designer demons come out from the pits of hell who have the ability to torment us and put malignant sores on the body with, with, uh, with, with all sorts of things that can happen. And Revelation chapter 16, which includes malignant sores and things that are happening, the Bible says that there'll be hailstones weighing up to 75 pounds apiece careening toward the earth. In the last weeks, people have asked me this question. Frank, what do you think it means about the Euphrates River drying up? Is the Euphrates River drying up? Prophetically, the Euphrates River will not dry up until you're midway through the tribulation. Jeremiah chapter 50 and Revelation chapter 16 tell us it will dry up in preparation for the battle of Armageddon. And it says this, where a large army from the east will be able to come through that area that we would know as the Euphrates River. That's devastation. That's the power of heavens, Jesus said, that will be shaken. So we have deception, we have tribulation, we have devastation. Let me get you to write down the fourth sign that has to happen before the end is over, and that's proclamation. Guys, I want to tell you that maybe this is going to be the most important thing I'm going to say today, so would you wake your husband up and just stay with me just for a minute. I want you to get this proclamation. Go back to verse 14. It says, And this gospel of the kingdom will be preached in all the world as a witness to all the nations, and then the end will come. So you see that? There's the statement that says, Frank, the end cannot come until the gospel is preached to the whole world. Can I tell you how many times mission organizations use that verse to say Jesus can't come back until we translate the Bible in every language, in every tongue, in every time? Many of you have heard it. You're nodding your head. You've heard that over and over. They say, look, Jesus can't come back until we get the whole world hearing the gospel so we can hasten the day of the Lord. When the Bible's clear that only God knows that, only the Father knows that. Jesus will come back, but he'll come back at the appointed time of the Father and not before. Guys, we cannot schedule his return by telling people the gospel. And the people that use that verse, it's called proof texting. When they use that verse to prove a point, I wish they would just go ahead and read the rest of the Bible. Read through the book of Revelation. Because the Bible makes it very clear about the worldwide proclamation. If you read chapter 11 of Revelation, don't look it up, just jot it down. We read about two witnesses that come to Jerusalem. But their activities are seen by everyone and heard by everyone on the planet. In our minds, we don't know how that could have happened previous to satellite and digital things that we have. But we all agree that when you go home this evening, you'll turn on the news and your eyes will be in Israel or Afghanistan or Europe or Antarctica or anywhere on the globe they want you to go. 
because we have the capacity to be able to see that. And these two witnesses will be able to preach, and it will be seen by everyone on earth. And that couldn't happen without the technology. And then also, did you know that there's a preaching angel coming? The Bible tells us that during that tribulation period, there's an angel coming from heaven through the, and gets the gospel to everyone. Notice on the screen, Revelation 14 and verse 6. Then I saw another angel flying in the midst of heaven, having the everlasting gospel to preach to those who dwell on the earth, to every nation, tribe, tongue, and people, every one of them. And you put that together with the promise in verse 14 and say, oh, maybe I do understand it. That's how it's going to happen. That's how the end will come. Let me give you a fifth one if I could. Please know this for sure. The entire gospel will be preached to the whole world. If not through us, it will be through angels and it will be through the witnesses. The Bible gives us that promise and that assurance. So don't you ever be afraid that God's not going to get his work done. Jesus said, I will build my church and the gates of hell will not prevail against it. Someone say amen this morning. Fifth thing, would you write this down? Abomination. Look at verse 15. Jesus said, therefore, when you see the abomination of desolation... Now, that's a technical term we get from the book of Daniel. In the days ahead, Lord willing, if you don't transfer your membership, I'm going to get to the book of Daniel, and we're going to deal with that a little bit. This is the abomination of desolation spoken of by Daniel the prophet standing in the holy place. And I'll notice this. Whoever reads, let him understand. Jesus anticipates that someone is going to be reading this and say, wait a minute, this is that. It's happening. And it says, then let those who are in Judea flee to the mountains. Notice there's nothing in there about Columbus. It says those that are in Judea, there's nothing about New York City. There's nothing about Los Angeles. There's no other capital in the world mentioned. It says, then those who are in Judea flee to the mountains. Let him who was on the housetop not go down to take anything out of his house. And let him who is in the field not go back to get his clothes. But woe to those who are pregnant and to those who are nursing babies in those days. And pray that your flight, your fleeing, may not be in the winter or on the Sabbath. What in the world is he talking about? Here it is. You need to know that this is a very Judeo-centric scripture. This is written for the restoration of Israel. This is written at a time where God is going to do a tremendous work in the people of Israel. It keeps in mind that it's taking place in Jerusalem, in in Judea, at the temple. It's, It's the desecration, the abomination of desolation takes place right in Jerusalem. Spoken of by Daniel the prophet, standing in the holy place. And the holy place was a section in the temple which no longer exists today. But there will be. The Bible predicts a temple in Jerusalem in the future. According to Daniel chapter 9, it does. Jesus even references Daniel. According to Daniel 9, a prince, a ruler, we know him as the Antichrist, will make a treaty and a peace agreement with the nation of Israel for seven years. And in the middle of that seven-year period, he's going to break the deal. He'll renege on the treaty and set up some kind of abomination in the temple. You wonder, well, what could that be? Well, the Apostle Paul fills in a little bit of that blank force in 2 Thessalonians chapter 2, describing the man of sin. Notice what it says on the screen. Who opposes and exalts himself, exalts himself above all that is called God or that is worshipped, so that he sits in the temple of God to show himself that he is God. So this guy is going to come in the temple of Jerusalem, 
break the covenant with the Jewish nation and create this what Jesus called the abomination of desolation spoken of by Daniel, spoken of by Jesus, spoken of by Paul, incidentally predicted by the apostle John in the book of Revelation. So that's five signs so far. We're going to have deception, and and we're going to have tribulation, and we're going to have destruction, and we're going to have a proclamation, and we're going to have this abomination that takes place. But then the sixth thing that I want you to write down is salvation. The end result is that always God wins. And it's only hinted at here, and then it's inferred later, and the detail is filled in by the Apostle Paul. But I want you to look at verse 22. Jesus said, unless those days were shortened, no flesh would be saved. But for the elect's sake, those days will be shortened. In other words, if it could happen, it would happen, but it's not going to happen because I'm always going to save and preserve and protect my own. And it's going to be only three and a half year period that those judgments take place in. It says this, notice in verse 23 then, if anyone says to you, look, here's the Christ, you're there, don't believe it. For false Christs and false prophets will rise and show great signs and wonders to deceive, if possible, the elect. And that's as if to say it's not possible to deceive the elect. Now, when you read the words elect, I know you get in your reformed clothing and you feel like, well, I'm part of the elect. Well, you are thinking dispensationally, and I want you to move beyond that and think of the elect throughout the whole Old Testament happen to be the people of Israel, the people of God. During this tribulation period, the elect, again, that God is reaching out to specifically during that time is the elect of the people of Israel at that time. Uh, At the time that Jesus was there, they had no notion of the church even being a reality. And I think that he's talking here about people alive at the time who are Jewish believers in Jesus. How do I know that? Because Paul, the apostle in Romans 3, three chapters, he talks about the future salvation of the Jewish people. Don't ever discount the Jewish people. By the way, have you ever had a Jewish person get saved around you, come to Jesus Christ? Jewish people are exciting people to begin with. But you get one on fire for Jesus. I'm redeemed. Messiah is here. We had a a guy here who's in heaven today, a Jewish guy named Harvey. He was my buddy. I loved him so much. And uh, he was Jewish through and through. And he had accepted Christ in his life. And one day I was praying and I noticed Harvey was looking around. And another week I actually looked again to see if he had his eyes closed. And he didn't. I went to him after service and said, Harvey, why don't you close your eyes when we pray? He said, huh, in a room full of Gentiles I'm going to close my eyes. I I don't think so. But notice what it says in Romans chapter 11, verse 25. It said, blindness has happened to Israel until the fullness or the full number of the Gentiles has come in. And so all Israel will be saved as it is written. And then he quotes Psalms and Isaiah. And you say, well, what do you mean all Israel will be saved? All right, fast forward to the book of Revelation. We're actually given the number of saved Jewish people. And many of you know the number. 144,000 will become great evangelists and witnesses. 12,000 out of all 12 tribes, very specific. Make no mistake about this. The Bible says they're saved and they're sealed by God. And then don't forget there's going to be those two witnesses that appear on the scene. Very powerful ministry in Jerusalem to the Jerusalemites that are there. There's going to be a flying angel that's going through heaven proclaiming the gospel to the whole world in their language all at the same time. 
And it's going to be an exciting thing that takes place as a net result of the preaching angel of the two witnesses of the 144,000 saved Jews. And what's the result of that? The result in Revelation chapter 7 is that there will be an incredible multitude. And here's what it says. A great multitude that no one could number of all the nations standing before God's throne giving him praise and honor and glory. So you say, doesn't God care about the world? God cares about the world. Here's what you need to think about. The greatest revival was not at Asbury. The greatest revival was not what happened in 1904 on Azusa Street for the Church of God in Cleveland, Tennessee. The greatest revival is yet to come. The greatest revival that will have a global impact will be what happens during this period in time. It could happen at any time. But here's the problem. We have a problem because over and over it says Jesus could come right now. It could happen. It says get ready, be ready, be watchful. And at the same time it says this has to happen first. This has to be fulfilled first. So what's the solution? Got to come, can't come. Well, on the third point on your outline is maybe a principle that explains the difference in the two. How, how do we solve the problem if it could happen any moment and then it can't happen at any moment? Here's one solution that someone came up with, and that is to say Jesus cannot come at any moment. Uh, yes, there are people who say, say, say that in the church, that he can't come at any moment because the signs haven't been fulfilled. So, so there's no hope of the imminent return of Christ. Until every one of those prophecies are, for, are fulfilled, he cannot return. One very famous theologian, uh, evangelical world, by the name of Louis Burkhoff, wrote this in one of his uh, concordances. He said, according to the scriptures, several important events must occur before the return of the Lord, and therefore it cannot be said to be an imminent return. He was saying that Jesus cannot come back at any moment. Well, if that is really true, wouldn't that nullify all the promises we were given by Jesus Christ when he was on this earth and the commandments to be ready, to be ready, to be ready, to be watchful? It could happen. You never know. It's going to be like a thief in the night. I mean, we're told to watch and be ready to something that can't happen. It's like, watch it, watch it, get ready. Psych, it's not going to happen. Just fooling. Jesus would never do anything like that. That's contradictory. So I don't buy that explanation. There's a second solution that has been offered over these two different times. And the second solution offered by some is that these signs have already been fulfilled in the past. And it was fulfilled in 70 A.D. when the Roman Empire was still there. And you go, really explain that to me. Well, there was great persecution, if you remember your world history. Caesar and Nero and all of the emperors that were there, they did this huge tribulation. And there were some Jews who were saved. And that position is called the preterist view. Preterist means in the past. It's a Latin word. And they're saying that everything that you read in Matthew chapter 24, the entire discourse of the Mount of Olives sermon that Jesus gave, ended by 70 A.D. There's great people who I admire and respect that take that position. Dr. R.C. Sproul, you've heard his name many times, and he's in heaven. And some of you remember Dr. D. James Kennedy, great preacher, held that position. R.C. Sproul said this, and I'm quoting, I'm convinced that the substance of the Olivet Discourse, that's Matthew 24, was fulfilled in A.D. 70. So they see the destruction of the temple in A.D. 70 as the abomination of desolation. 
And some of them believe that Jesus has even come back. So when I talked to you about the Millerites predicting Jesus was coming, and a group started called the Adventists, they believe that Jesus has already returned spiritually since 1844 and is doing his intermediate judgment in, in the heavenlies at this point in time. And they say that Jesus is coming back, but it's a spiritual realm. You've got to be kidding me, guys. It's got, it has to be more than that. You mean that everything that the early church fathers and the disciples endured to the end, did they see it to the end? No. Did they see worldwide evangelism in verse 14? Did they see the abomination of desolation? They didn't. Did they see worldwide darkness and stars falling from the sky? I don't think so. I think this speaks of future Jewish believers who are going to see those things during the tribulation period. But we still haven't solved the problem. We're getting ready to because you've got to go to lunch. What's the solution? A good solution, maybe for your consideration, is a two-stage coming of the Lord Jesus Christ. First of all, maybe it's possible that Jesus is going to come for his church, not to the earth, but maybe up in the atmosphere like the Bible talks about in 1 Thessalonians 4, 17. And then he will return with his church to the earth at his second coming. At the first, he comes for a church that is preceded by no signs whatsoever. The rapture is a signless event. I gave you an illustration a week or two ago of Thanksgiving versus Christmas. We know all about Christmas, but Thanksgiving just slips in on you. And Jesus returned, the rapture, nothing. Write it down big and plain and bold. Nothing has to happen before the return of the Lord Jesus Christ for his saints. In a moment, Paul said, in the twinkling of an eye, the dead in Christ will be raised, and we will ever be with the Lord. So this morning, let's wrap it up by talking about either the rapture or the return. You want to fill this in at the bottom of your outline? At the rapture, Jesus comes for his church. And that's what Paul has predicted. That's what Jesus talked about. That's what Peter said. That's what James was talking about. And that has been the blessed hope of the church, to be ready, to be prepared. You see, if you could predict it at a time, Say that, that we would experience the abomination of desolation spoken of by the prophet Daniel. Well, we know for certain that there are only 1,260 days at that point until Jesus would return. But we don't know when Jesus is going to return. It means imminent. It means soon. When you read John writing in Revelation, these things will take place quickly. It doesn't mean that they will take place calendar quickly, but when they begin to happen, they will click, 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 click very fast that way. At the rapture, Jesus comes for his church. At the return, Jesus comes with his church. He settles down in something we call the millennial reign. You say, Frank, I don't understand that. Come back next week and you will. <laughs> and we'll talk about that. At the return, Jesus comes from heaven through the atmosphere. 1 Corinthians 15, in a moment, in the twinkling of the eye, and the second coming of the return is highly predictable. I can tell you exactly when the second coming is going to happen. It's going to happen exactly seven years after the rapture of the church. It's going to happen seven years after Christ says. And the Bible says, and, not, and let me just say this. Nowhere does the Bible say watch for the tribulation. Nowhere does it say wait for the tribulation. There's nothing that's going to happen before Jesus Christ returns. So the good news, Jesus is coming back. The bad news, Jesus is coming back. It's both exciting and it is excruciating, and it depends on who you are. If you're ready to meet Jesus Christ today, you're going to be very excited about that. Martin Luther said this one time. 
Gary, this is for you. Preach as if Jesus Christ was crucified yesterday, rose from the dead today, and is coming back tomorrow. I want to up Martin. Maybe we should live as if though Jesus were crucified yesterday and live as if though he rose from the dead today and live as if though he's coming back tomorrow. If he were to return tomorrow, do you know him? Do you know him as your Lord and Savior? Have you accepted the great sacrifice that he made on that cross of Calvary? That whenever he returns, whenever it is, I may be wrong. You can maybe eschatologically beat me in an argument and talk me out of things. But if you're ever going to try to talk me out of my salvation, you better pack a big lunch, Bubba. Because I know whom I have believed in and am persuaded that he is able to keep that which I've committed unto him against that day. Amen?